I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You're listening to episode 58. If you missed the pilot episode or this is your first time listening, this is a podcast for what we call Mind Discipleship. It's a podcast for those who want to set their minds on things above. So in the book Hidden in Christ, I wrote these words, when it comes down to it, living the Christian life is simply a matter of where we set our minds. Greg Boyd said, mind discipleship is the most important discipleship of all. And that's why we do this podcast, because it is a real challenge to set your minds on things above. There's so many things that distract us and pull us away. There's a lot of things below that kind of get in the way and grab our attention. So we're doing this podcast because it's our attempt to say, Let's, let's every week have some kind of thought from above, some idea, some concept, some narrative that would be encouraging and uplifting and inspiring, and that's why we do it. Well, today's thought from above is this, no more silly superstitions. In two previous podcasts, I spoke about how worry is essentially superstition. We think by worrying, we actually have an effect on a situation we're concerned about. We've trained ourselves to worry through a process that I described that goes something like this. We worry about something. Then that bad thing that we worried about doesn't come to pass. And then we assume that our worry was the key reason why it never happened. What a good worrier am I, as I often say. And that's what we think, which reinforces the need to worry next time, and on and on it goes. But the worry, according to Jesus, did not actually do anything. By worrying, we did nothing to actually prevent the problem from happening. But we would love to think that we made some kind of difference, that we had some measure of control, because, well, we would love to have some measure of control in our lives. And that's the reason that we do it. It's the exact same principle behind other kinds of superstitions. That's why I call it a superstition. You see it in sports all the time. An athlete who wears a lucky shirt or doesn't wash their socks after they've won a game. Or carrying a rabbit's foot or wearing a lucky charm or crossing oneself before an at-bat or a free throw or a field goal. The athlete does some ritual right before they shoot the free throw, and then they make the free throw, and they assume that whatever that ritual was was the reason that it went in. Of course, it wasn't the reason. It was actually hard work and practice and skill. No one, Jesus says, can do anything by worrying. All worrying ever does is to harm us. That's all worrying is good for. But in this episode, I want to address another superstition that plagues many Christians, and almost as much, especially for some people, who struggle with a false narrative that I want to expose. And I have to first admit that I, too, am one who has struggled with this false narrative, so I know it pretty well. This false narrative is the belief that God punishes us for our sins. It's kind of a divine quid pro quo, uh, a this-for-that kind of arrangement. We sin, and then we assume God must level some kind of divine retribution. So, for example, let's say we tell a lie. 
And let's say it's a somewhat serious lie, not just a little white lie as we like to think. But let's say it's like uh, maybe calling in sick to work when we're not sick at all. We just don't want to go in that day. And we do it, and then we know, well, that was wrong. I lied. I flat out lied. But we do it anyway, and we usually find ways to justify it, but that's another topic for another time. Now, for many who hold this false narrative, we will then assume that God only knows that we lied, saw that we lied, but is also pretty upset about it and is already devising some way to punish us. This is a very common belief. In the book, The Good and Beautiful God, I cite a poll taken at Baylor in which 38% of American Christians actually believe that God is doing this. Nearly three out of four Christians ticked a box that said, I believe God is an angry judge who's poised to punish us for our sins. So, when we sin, we assume God's mad and is planning on getting us back for it. Perhaps it will manifest itself in a loss or a setback, a financial problem, or worse, maybe an illness for ourselves or even a loved one. And that's how the false narrative works. It works proactively, meaning that when we sin, we think, well, something is coming, right? But I've also discovered that it works retroactively as well. It works in reverse. So, in this case, something bad happens, something happens in our lives that's bad, and then we start to wonder, hey, what did I do that caused that to happen? It's an old narrative, an ancient one, actually. It can be traced back to the book of Job, in which Job's friends, I say that in air quotes, see his suffering and assume that Job has done something to merit it. Hey, hey, what did you do, Job, is their line of questioning. And we see it also in the Gospels as well. So when Jesus and his disciples come upon a man born blind, congenital blindness, they ask, who sinned, Rabbi, this man or his parents, that God caused this to happen to him? And this exact same thing happens on two other occasions, once when a tower fell on a group of people and killed them, which was a kind of natural disaster, and on another occasion when a group of innocent people were slaughtered. And so that would be a man-made kind of disaster. But on both occasions, the same question is asked of Jesus. Hey, Jesus, rabbi, teacher, what did they do to cause this to happen to them? Here's an important point. On all three occasions, Jesus denies this narrative. He never affirms that narrative. In contrast, he actually exposes them as false narratives. On the man born blind, he tells his disciples that neither the man nor his parents did anything to cause the blindness, but that his condition is such that God will be glorified. And Jesus heals him, and he's glorified, and we're talking about him today. He never affirms the narrative that the people who suffered did anything to deserve it. He never does that. Jesus never affirms this kind of divine quid pro quo. And in fact, his actions and his teachings tell the opposite story. They actually reverse that narrative. So, for example, he comes across a woman caught in adultery and prevents her rightful punishment. I mean, there is nowhere in the story 
that, you know, she was innocent or whatever. I mean, the point is that she was caught and she was about to be stoned to death. But Jesus does some things that actually prevent her from that punishment. Also, he chats with a woman at a well who is living in sin. He knows that. But instead of asking for change or telling her she's being punished or anything like that, he just says, I have some living water that you can have. He encounters a man named Zacchaeus, a famous story, who was a known extortioner. And Jesus invites himself to dine with Zacchaeus at Zacchaeus' home. There's never any word about, hey, this bad thing's happening to you because of what you've been doing. It's quite the opposite. All three of these sinners, if you will, are never told God's punishing them at all. But instead, all of them are offered forgiveness, even if it's unspoken, and offered a relationship with Jesus, a relationship that leads all of them actually to change, to go and sin no more, as he literally says to the woman caught in adultery, or to give back what has been stolen, in the case of Zacchaeus. One final point about this. In Jesus' most famous story, it's actually the most preached about text in the Bible, which is the story of the prodigal son. In that story, Jesus' most famous story, the main sinner, if you will, in the story causes his own demise. And when he finally comes to his senses, as it says in the text, and decides to come home, he's not met with judgment, but rather a party. You know, I often say to people, there's only one answer to the question, what is God like? And that answer is Jesus. John 14, 9. If you've seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. So this insanely common, incredibly pervasive, and ancient false narrative is exposed by Jesus. Not once, not twice, but several times. So why do we buy this lie? For the same reason we buy the worry lie. We want some measure of control. If my actions determine God's behavior, then I'm in control. By my sins, I force God to act against me. But by that same token, by my good actions, I force God to bless me. In both cases, I am in control, and I like that even if it's killing me, even if it's based on a lie. You see, grace, grace takes away any sense of control. And that's actually harder for us. Because in truth, we don't actually have that kind of power over God. And God's not interested in meeting out punishment for us on the basis of our sins. I mean, if so, that would be all, about all God would ever be doing. I mean, after all, I not only commit sins of commission, as they say, I commit sins of omission, the things I fail to do. So God is going to be pretty busy just constantly, like, well, there was that sin, I got to meet that punishment, right? That's not God's plan. Okay, so if God is not punishing us for our sins, do our sins matter to God? Do they matter at all? I answer emphatically, yes. So. Here's another one of my caveats. I haven't done a caveat in a little while, but here's one. Yes, our sins do matter. Our sins cause us pain. They turn us from God, and they turn us from ourselves. Here's what I believe is the true narrative when it comes to this issue of sin. 
our sins are acts of self-punishment. Okay, it's a big point, so I'm going to repeat it. Our sins are acts of self-punishment. Now, what do I mean by that? Every time we sin, we are turning, first of all, away from God. We're saying, I'm just not going to go God's will, God's way. And so that act, that turning from God, is really the major thing that causes us harm, because now we've stepped out of fellowship with God. And then we, we commit that act, whatever the act of sin might be. You can pick one of the seven deadly ones or lots of other ones. There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament, so lots of ways to break commandments or to sin. But when we do that, what we're doing is turning away from God, and that's why it causes a breach. Now, some sins, to be sure, actually involve other people. So back to my example about lying, about work, then you're actually now you're, brought, you're drawing someone else into the sin itself, right? You've lied to someone. So there are also sins that involve other people, and they harm other people. And in a sense, I think what they do is they cause relational breaches. That's what happens when I, by my sin, involve another person. They may, in fact, harm another person directly. I mean, for example, if we're mean or we're angry or we say something really hurtful to someone, that's a sin that actually does hurt someone else. So when I say that sins are acts of self-punishment, they certainly are that in their essence and their origin, but they also have an effect on others. And to be honest, of course, all of our sins, even the private ones, ultimately do harm other people, though often indirectly. Because when we sin, we're harming ourselves, and that harm will be felt by others, especially those we love and live with. So, what am I saying? I'm saying that this idea that God is meeting out some kind of punishment for all of our sins all of the time has been exposed by Jesus. It's just simply not true, and it's deadly, and it's very harmful to us. But we hold on to it. We hold on to it because, well, I just would like to have some kind of control, and grace just doesn't let that happen. Grace is basically God's way of saying, no, you you actually don't have that kind of ability to control what I do. I love you, and I'm always going to love you, and I'm with you. And yet, as I said in the caveat, at the same time, our sin harms us. It always has, and it always will. Well, I want to close this episode with one of my favorite stories. It's a story that I first heard from Dallas Willard, and it's a story about George Fox and William Penn. George Fox was the founder of the Quakers, and William Penn was the founder of the colony known as Pennsylvania. But these were two very important figures in in certainly Christian history. But George Fox, again, he was an older Christian. He was mentoring William Penn. And William Penn had come from um, a wealthy family. And as was common in that day, um, a person who came from an upper class you usually was separated by their attire, by what they wore. You kind of knew who the wealthy people were, who the poor people were, on the basis of what they, they were wearing. And in the case of someone who was a part of the gentry or the upper class, one of the things that the men wore was a sword. Now, they didn't wear a sword um, around their waist necessarily to use it, but it was, it was actually a part of your attire. It was like a really cool accessory, if you will. And so William Penn, here's this young guy. He's become a Quaker, and he's from this wealthy family. 
and he's been wearing this sword uh, as a part of his general attire. But he feels badly about it because, well, first of all, he knows, look, Quakers are pacifists, right, first of all, so the sword represents violence. And second, he also knows that one of the Quaker values of simplicity and equality is also being affected by wearing the sword because it's sort of separating him by class. So in the story, this favorite story of mine about these two guys, William Penn goes to George Fox and shares with him his concern. He's like, I'm not really sure I should be wearing the sword. I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it. And so he talks it through. And when he's done sharing his concern with George Fox, George Fox famously says to Penn, wear it as long as you can, William. Wear it as long as you can. And at first you might go, well, that's a weird thing to say. I mean, what is, what is Fox saying by that? What George Fox was communicating to William Penn, he's saying, I know that in your conscience, you know this is wrong. But I could tell you that it's wrong. I could say, for heaven's sake, you're a Quaker, William. Take the sword off, right? And give him a law, give him a commandment. But what he understood was that William Penn was a person who was under the leading of the Spirit. And he trusted in that. And he knew that as long as he continued to try to walk in the Spirit, to keep his mind on things above, to live this Christian life, that eventually he would look at that sword and say, you know what, I don't need to be wearing this because of the reasons that were mentioned. And that's exactly what William Penn eventually did. So Jim, why do you like that story so much? Well, I think it really is a story you can apply in many ways because typically we want to um, sort of lay down laws and say, this is right, this is wrong. But as Christians, we also know that it's really about the heart and what's happening inside the human heart. That's what Jesus is most concerned about. I mean, he was critical of people who were very fastidious in keeping the law, but their hearts were far, far from God. So what I love about the story is it just it reminds me that as we're living the Christian life, following the leading of the Spirit, we'll know, right? We'll know this is the right thing to do, and we'll do it because it's the right thing to do. Right. And, and that's the whole issue about, about sin. It, sin is its own kind of punishment of us. But eventually we begin to see the right way and we choose the right way and we make those decisions and it shapes and forms our character, which is God's ultimate plan. I hope you join me next week for episode 59. And that will be a Things Above conversation with Casey Tigret. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith, and you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you'll get them automatically each week. My hope is that one day, if you're asked, hey, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.